Hi, Only a Game listeners. This is Karen Given. I'm in your feeds earlier than usual this week because I want to make sure you know that we've got a live virtual event coming up on Wednesday, August 12th at 6 p.m. Eastern. We're going to delve deeper into our recent special episode, Sports, Racism, and the Myth of Meritocracy. This will be your chance to ask questions of three expert guests who appeared on that episode. Penn State professor Amira Rose Davis, former Princeton runner Russell Dinkins, and journalist Derek Z. Jackson. Again, that's Wednesday, August 12th at 6 p.m. Eastern. Register and learn how to submit your questions at wbur.org slash events. That's wbur.org slash events. And as a refresher, here's that special episode again. It originally aired on June 27th, 2020. This is only a game. I'm Karen Given. I want to start today's show at the movies because I've been thinking a lot lately about the messages Hollywood sends about sports and race. One of the first things that comes to mind is Rocky One, which is kind of a weird starting place. That's former Only a Game producer Nico Emac. You know, Apollo Creed comes out and it's this huge spectacle. Is that the world heavyweight champion? Apollo you know, Creed? he's in a, in a boat, right? Uh, and it kind of contrasts with Rocky's kind of humble, I'm just a guy from the neighborhood, I'm just going to come out, you know, in my sweats and do my thing. He looks like a big flag. Another example that comes to mind is Jerry Maguire. You know, it's great that they're so confident in their abilities, but it does kind of harken back to a time of shucking and jiving. And it's really disappointing to see time and time and time again. Sports are often seen as a place where all that matters is hard work and talent, a place that's somehow immune to systemic racism, a place where African-Americans can get ahead. Or at least that's how sports are portrayed in pop culture. Consider movies that focus on black athletes. You know, they come from extreme poverty. What? Never had one before. What, a room to yourself? A bet. Uh, in a blind side, you know, it's a family, a white family that basically adopts a black kid who, you know, proves his worth because he's great at football. This is Eric Deggins. He's a TV critic for NPR. The film is mostly from the perspective of the white family that is taking him in. And it turned away from some of the deeper questions that it could have investigated about what, you know, what happens when society is set up in such a way that the, the best option for a young black man is to leave everybody he knows and go live with a white family. It's like, <laughs> and the, the situations that he lives in are presented as a result of choices that individual people make. And the whole systemic part of it, you know, doesn't really exist for the film. You're only getting a certain perspective from these kind of movies and these tropes that you start to believe them in the real life, which can be really, really, really problematic. Nico and Eric aren't the only ones who see big issues with The Blind Side, which, by the way, is the highest-grossing sports movie of all time. Definitely the white hero coming in. That's only a game contributor and the game last night host, Olivia Christian. Teaching lessons about life in general and don't give up trying to explain challenges to African Americans as if they had no idea life would be that difficult until this person showed up. 
you know, like a coach that shows up into the hood and, you know, these guys have no hope. That's the athletics Michael Lee. He starts to discover that maybe he's more bigoted than he thought. And these kids are helping him understand that he's got to be cool. And they teach him how to dance and maybe perform a rap song. And and all's great. That story plays out, I think, at least 75 million times in the movies. What was the movie with Keanu Reeves? It was a baseball movie. It's Keanu Reeves. He's a gambler. It's called Hardball. Hardball, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's the movie that always pops into my head. Keanu Reeves goes to Chicago in the housing developments, gets this ragtag team together. New rule. No one can say anything bad to anyone else on the field. They win the championship. Just a guy who's a gambler. It's not even like he's an ex-baseball player. He's just a white guy who comes <laughs> and saves the day. <laughs> You're trying to create a message of equality. This is Jerry Brewer from The Washington Post. But the larger message can be misconstrued as it takes a white person to give credibility to a black person so that we can thrive. And uh, that's a very dangerous message to send. There are a lot of myths about what sports can do. But the biggest of them all is the myth that sports can somehow solve racism. You see it time and again in movies, in 42, Invictus, and perhaps most famously, 2000's Remember the Titans. Listen up, I don't care if you're black, green, blue, white, or orange. I want all of my defensive players on this side, all players going out for offense over here, right now. Remember the Titans, like anytime it's on, it's often on on a Saturday afternoon uh, when I'm trying to complete my honey-do list and I sit down and I watch it. It's a great movie, but there is something weird about, okay, we're going to solve our locker room tension by having everybody sing in the locker room. Ain't no mountain high love. ain't no valley low. Look, first of all, a lot of these movies are very good and entertaining, which is why they also are so sly and slick about this. Dr. Amira Rose Davis teaches history and African-American studies at Penn State, and she co-hosts the podcast Burn It All Down. They're very, very clear to ground it in the past. Like, this is the past, and it's a bunch of microaggressions, and there's one, like, big, mean, racist moment. And then there's a lot of white people in the movie, teammates or otherwise, who are like, oh, I see it now. So I watched Remember the Titans for the first time last weekend. It's set in 1971 and based on the true story of the forced integration of a high school in Virginia. There's a football coach played by Denzel Washington. And when he moves to town, someone throws a brick through his window. But when the team starts winning, all of the coach's neighbors come out of their houses to cheer. Would his white neighbors have accepted him if they were losing? People are not coming together because they've suddenly had an eye-opening experience about racism. People are coming together because they are winning. But instead of amplifying that point, instead of the end saying, oh yeah, see what can happen when you win, it becomes, this was transformative. People say that it can't work, black and white. Well, here we make it work every day. We have our disagreements, of course. But before we reach for hate, always, always, we remember the Titans. Winning the championship, they actually didn't win. Coming in second place in the state does not solve the structural racism of integration in Virginia. And so we we get lulled into a sense of 
reaching a mountaintop of a mountain we're still climbing. Former Only A Game producer Nico Emac is also familiar with Remember the Titans. Oh, of course, with Denzel. <laughs> One of my favorites. <laughs> the actor, not the movie. <laughs> I saw it as a kid. It's a great story about, you know, learning about each other, you know, through sports. But then you get a bit older and you realize that, oh, okay, that's a little bit more Disney. <laughs> it's only scratching the surface. Everyone kind of gets to pat themselves on the back and say, ah, oh, I solved racism. You know, it reminds me a lot of kind of the social media activism that we're seeing right now, where people post a black square or companies post a black square. But at the end of the day, they go home and they say, oh, job's done. I did my part when, you know, that's it's great. It's good. But again, it's just doing the bare minimum. It's not pushing yourself to an uncomfortable place to really explore some of those themes and topics. So that's what we're going to do on today's show. We're going to ask ourselves the uncomfortable questions. We're going to show that sports isn't this mythical, Disney-fied world where everyone is equal and racism is a thing only found in history books. In fact, we're going to detail some of the ways in which sports in the U.S., actually perpetuate systemic inequality. And we're going to talk to some people who are trying to imagine a better system. We call this show the myth of meritocracy because there's a belief in sports that all that matters is talent and hard work. (laughs) It makes me laugh. It really does. Only because we cling to the myth of meritocracy so much despite all evidence to the contrary. That's Amira Rose Davis again. When she talks about this, she likes to use track and field as a metaphor. It's really easy to look at the starting line of a 100-meter race and feel like everybody has an equitable chance. I think that's really seductive. But we know that the person at the one position might have better spikes, might have better grips, might have had a lifetime of access to resources that have conditioned them to be where they are. And the person next to them might just be there on raw talent. Sport is of this world and our world is deeply, deeply inequitable. And that's just the facts. And when it comes to youth sports, those inequities are actually growing. Here's Only a Game's Jonathan Chang. When Otto Lowy was eight or nine years old, his mom signed him up for youth baseball. He had already been playing soccer, but why not try another sport? That first season, Otto made the all-star team. But that came at a cost, literally. Being an all-star meant more travel and higher fees. So Otto's mom gave him an ultimatum. She was like, listen, you're really good at both sports, but you got to pick one. Just pick a sport, whatever you want. We'll make the most of it, and I think you'll be amazing at it. Otto chose soccer, but this issue of young athletes having to give up sports because of money, it happens all the time. Kids at really young ages get weeded out, and there's sort of this haves versus have-nots depending on how much money you have. John Solomon of the Aspen Institute gathers data on youth sports. You know, we have research that shows that kids who are from lower income households are far more likely to not be playing sports on a regular basis compared to higher income households. And for Otto, even sticking with just soccer was going to be tough. As he got older, the costs rose. This was back in the late 90s. And Otto says he was paying around $2,000 a season as a middle schooler. When he got to high school... Then you're looking at upwards of like two, five, three k 
Unlike a lot of kids facing rising costs, Otto was able to arrange another way to pay. From eighth grade on to my senior year, me and my mom would paint soccer fields Friday night prior to the Saturday-Sunday games. So that's like about six or seven fields. Just me and her, because that was the only way I was going to be able to play. Otto's story represents a growing problem. Over the course of the past, say, 30 years, we've had a defunding of sports within our communities and school systems. That's the University of Oklahoma's Dr. Kirsten Hextrom. She studies race and college sports. But a parallel occurrence has happened alongside that, which is we've had an increase of private sports clubs popping up to replace what once was done by low-cost recreational or school sports. And there's a reason families sometimes go to extreme lengths to try and give their kids an opportunity to participate in these programs. Even basketball and football, which are the two sports that still remain the most common sports sponsored across schools in America, you aren't becoming a college basketball star just by playing high school basketball. You have to be joining these travel teams, these AAU teams. Even after Otto and his mom found a way to pay for high-level soccer, there were moments when people tried to make him feel like he didn't belong. One time... I forgot my water bottle. And a teammate of mine, he was like, hey, I'll give him an extra bottle for my little brother. Like, cool, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. So I'm drinking the water, talking to, like, the two-year-old kid, just, like, helping me out. And as I'm walking away, or vividly, the parent literally was like, never drink from that black boy again ever in your life to the two-year-old kid who has no idea what's going on waste the water out completely and i look back and i watch it all unfold and i'm just like wow and then mind you there are numerous occasions where little rich white kids to try to get underneath my nerve would just pull out the n-word as much as they can to get me riled up so that was just a normal occasion Growing up in a predominantly black neighborhood in inner-city Atlanta, Otto didn't just get the sense that he didn't belong in soccer from white families. He also got it from the black community. It was the Michael Jordan era, and in my community, they were like, you don't have to play soccer. Like, that's not a sport for you. That's for the rich white kids up north. You need to play football or basketball with us. The people saying this to Otto, they might have thought they had his best interest at heart. After all, in the U.S., there's more money in those sports. And in a society that's so stacked against them and their children, black parents, according to an Aspen Institute study, are more likely than white parents to view youth sports as a means to an end. Here's John Solomon again. So parents of African-American youth rated the pursuit of a college scholarship as 23% more important than white parents, and a pro sports opportunity as 26% more important. That's a form of internalized oppression that Black families may not even be cognizant of that they're engaging in. Derek Jackson writes about sports and race for ESPN's The Undefeated. So Black families at some point end up, okay, this is what society's telling me my kid is going to have the best shot at doing because Let's face it, in American society, the way our society is set up, the most, quote, positive image we get of black men is when they are playing ball. 
Professor Scott Brooks of the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University says when young athletes make sports their main priority, that can have a much longer-term consequence. They've put everything else to the side. They're not as focused on school or school only as it pertains to keeping them eligible. They're not pursuing creative things like art, music even so much. This is everything. And when that ends, and often not of your own volition, all of these things that are senses of your purpose, that goes away. Eventually, Otto did earn an athletic scholarship to play soccer at Winthrop University in South Carolina. And in 2011, he signed an MLS contract with the New England Revolution. Unlike the vast majority of kids who devote themselves to sports, Otto actually did make it to the pros. It looked like the years of investment might actually pay off. But then he injured his back. Kind of like a ruptured disc between my L4, L5, and I was released. Otto played one season in the MLS. He made just $42,000. Later, Otto got a job as a marketing analyst. On top of that, he started coaching youth soccer. In 2016, he became an assistant coach for the Atlanta United Academy, in a country where youth sports is dominated by the pay-to-play model this was supposed to be different. MLS academies cover most financial needs, except transportation, not travel, the bus rides and flights for out-of-town competition, but getting from home to the team facility in downtown Atlanta and back. Otto says that some of the academy's players didn't have easy access to public transportation or parents who have time to drive them to practice. I put my hand up. I said, I will go pick them up myself and I would drive them there. And another coach offered to drive them back. Without Otto's help, some of the academy's players would have had a much harder time staying on the team. But Penn State's Dr. Amira Rose Davis says individual volunteers are not a solution to the larger systemic problems. To be fair, I think this happens a lot. Like anytime somebody shares a GoFundMe and is like, this is such a feel-good story. That's not a feel-good story. It's an indictment of the system. When we see a young black boy get out of an under-resourced, over-policed community by way of athletic scholarship, that's not a feel-good story. It's an indictment of the system. Some of these ready-made digestible narratives, are they digestible because we swallowed what we were fed without paying attention to what the ingredients were? Coming up, we'll tackle the digestible narrative that sports is a pathway to college for young black athletes. That's just ahead on Only a Game from NPR. Hey y'all, I'm Sam Sanders, host of It's Been a Minute. There is a lot going on in the world. So on my show, my guest and I make sense of the news and culture through conversation. It feels like we're living in three movies at once. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. It feels like a Mike Judge movie. It feels like a mm-hmm. Spike Lee movie. And it feels like a Michael Bay movie. Like <laughs> Every Tuesday and Friday, listen and subscribe now to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Karen Given. 
we're looking at the myth of meritocracy and the ways sports perpetuate racial inequalities in the U.S. It doesn't just happen in youth sports. It happens at the college level, too. Big news out of Brown University on Thursday. The school is dropping 11 varsity programs. Going from the efforts to save one of Brown's most diverse teams raise issues about who really benefits from college sports. Here's Only a Game's Martin Kessler. Not long after starting at Princeton in 2009, Russell Dinkins knew he'd entered a very different culture. The first weekend on campus after classes start, Princeton has something called lawn parties, where they have some sort of big concert, bunch of different musical performances and things like that. What stood out to Russell was what his new classmates were wearing. Saw all these people walking around with pastel colored everything, you know, boat shoes. And I, just like, I, I was like, what is this? I didn't even know what, Sp- I didn't know what Sperry's were. I'm like, what are these things that are people wearing? Other incoming freshmen seemed to already know the dress code. I thought, okay, maybe I should dress like that. I looked at my cl- I don't. I didn't have anything that looked remotely anything like that. So I purposefully remember wearing sweatpants and black Air Forces. <laughs> I definitely felt as if I was being defiant, um, because I was. But also, which is an act of like, preservation, because I didn't have those clothes. Russell grew up in inner-city Philadelphia. Just a pretty quiet, regular, working-class, majority-black neighborhood, you know? It's a lot of mamas and daddies getting on the bus, go to work. Russell was mostly raised by his mom. And in a lot of ways, his story fits a narrative people like to believe about sports in America. Because Russell ran track, and he was good. Good enough that Princeton wanted him. I didn't think that I was capable of going to the Ivy League. I was really looking at schools with a lower academic profile until Princeton called me and said, no, your grades are good. You're running well. We want you. And that made me go, oh, my gosh. I, Princeton? Are you, I can go there? So that was transformative for me. You know, life-altering. It's a story, sports as a vehicle for upward social mobility, that we get fed in movies. We out the projects, baby. Where we gonna live at, son? Central Park West somewhere? What you gonna buy your mom, son? How more? A big house. We hear it in music. Because the streets is a short stop. Either you're slinging crack rock or you got a wicked jump shot. It's a story the NCAA itself loves to promote. It's not about where you were born or the color of your skin. This is from a quote-unquote PSA the NCAA put out in 2017. If you have the skill and drive to succeed in school and in sports, we'll provide the opportunity. But when Russell Dinkins got to Princeton, he didn't find a lot of other athletes who looked like him. Looking back on it, um, yeah, most of the athletes were white. You know, Even our basketball team was pretty white, which is kind of really hilarious. And the whiteness of college athletics isn't unique to Princeton or even the Ivy League. So we know across divisions one, two, and three, about 72% of college athletes who are women are white. And then in terms of men, 64% are white. That's Oklahoma's Dr. Kirsten Hextrom again. She says those numbers are actually probably underestimates because they only take into account scholarship athletes. Because we see Black men represented in two of the most visible sports, i.e. basketball and football, it disguises the fact that the remaining 38 sports that are sponsored by the NCAA are predominantly played by white and middle-class athletes. 
See, colleges, and especially elite colleges, offer a number of varsity sports you probably won't find in public school gym class. There's golf, skiing, fencing, lacrosse, water polo, field hockey, sailing. Lightweight and heavyweight crew for both genders, uh, squash teams. Russell Dinkins again. These kind of sports aren't really accessible to people without a certain amount of means. This really matters because elite colleges reserve coveted admission spots for athletic recruits. And it's not an insignificant number of spots. Approximately 13% of Yale's class each year is made up of recruited athletes, according to the Washington Post. At Davidson College, it's around 25%. In 2018, The Atlantic put it like this. College sports are affirmative action for rich white students. White and middle-class communities have intentionally and explicitly over time sought out sports to advantage themselves in the college-going process. One of the ways we could think about this is that people who grew up in white middle-class communities are accelerating their advantage by pursuing sports. Kirsten Hextrom says there's really just four NCAA sports that draw a significant number of athletes of color basketball, football, baseball, and track and field. Which brings us to just a few weeks ago. That's when Russell Dinkins, who since graduating from Princeton in 2013, has worked in education and in diversity and inclusion, learned that Brown University was cutting its men's track and field team. I remember being very upset, but for some reason, I wanted to believe that there had to be some reason for this decision. Like what? I don't know. But I was hoping that I was going to go to the school's website and I was going to read their decision and say, okay, this makes sense. I was just hoping. I'm like, please make it make sense. The university was cutting 11 varsity teams, including men's track and field, and also elevating sailing to varsity status. Brown President Christina Paxson said the school wanted to make its sports teams more competitive. Brown University is embarking on a bold plan to reshape athletics for our student-athletes. Here she is in a video posted to the school's website. This is a strategic initiative to redistribute resources to elevate the excellence of varsity and club sports at Brown. She also said the move, quote, aligns with our diversity and inclusion efforts, expanding opportunities in competitive club sports. Then I got angry. Then I got mad. Because not only were the arguments, like, nonsensical in my view. But they also were misleading. The way that it's being presented makes it seem like club and varsity are at the same level. And club teams do not get funding from the university in a major way, and they also don't get recruiting spots. Russell knew that if men's track and field was no longer a varsity team, there would be even fewer of those coveted recruiting spots for sports often played by people of color. I went on to Brown's website and they counted the number of black guys that were on the uh, the roster for track. And then I looked up baseball, crew, ice hockey, and lacrosse. And there were more black guys on track and field than all of those other sports combined. Some of those other sports did not have a single black person. Some of those other sports did not have a single non-white person on them. Russell connected with Brown track alums. They thought the story deserved national attention. Russell decided to write something up. I'm a person without a platform. You know, I I think I had 400 followers on Twitter. One, I just wanted to write my ideas out, just get them out. Russell also thought he could send what he wrote to media outlets in hopes that they'd cover the story themselves. So he got to work. 
I worked like pretty much all day on it. Um, and I was part of me. I remember I was like, "Why am I working so hard on something that like no one's gonna read?" You know, but I, but I, but I. <laughs> That's how but, I feel every week. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, I posted it at like 11 p.m. I woke up in the morning, and I think in the morning I had 1,000 or 2,000 views, and then it just started snowballing. Brown track alums also continued working to save the team, and then 12 days after Brown's initial announcement the university said it was reinstating the men's track and field team. And so when I found out, overjoyed, I remember I made an Instagram Live, just very emotional. You guys know I did not go to Brown, but I felt personally impacted by this decision. And I needed to fight for that kid whose name I will never know because them taking away that spot that kid who could have had a life-changing opportunity. So the Brown men's track and field team has been saved. But when it comes to college sports and racial inequities, University of Oklahoma professor Kirsten Hextrom says we're actually moving in the wrong direction. In 2017, ESPN's The Undefeated published an analysis called The Gentrification of College Hoops, which looked at the percentage of Division I college athletes who were first-generation college students, as in kids whose parents did not attend college. In 2010, that number was just 16.1%. By 2015, it had dropped to 14.2%. So in spite of the NCAA PSAs about college sports providing opportunity for everyone, the vast majority of its athletes are white, and only a small and seemingly decreasing fraction are first-generation college students not exactly the path for upward mobility that many would like to believe. So yes, I think like many of the gaps, the wealth gap, the racial achievement gaps, these gaps have increased over time in very systematic ways. And even for the Black men and women who are able to use sports as a means of upward mobility, inequities persist once they get to campus. For 25 years, journalist Derek Jackson has been following the graduation rates of white and black college football and basketball players. You have many football teams where the white graduation rate is 80% and above, whereas the black graduation rates are more like 50 to 65%. Jackson believes we need to think much bigger than trying to preserve or create more pathways for young black men and women to enter college through sports. I think we really need to see sports as a very, very checkered pathway. Not necessarily negative, but I do think we really have to see it for what it is. Um, And what I mean by that is for black people, sports ends up being something that they are channeled into after being denied full aspirations for anything else. When we get back from the break, we'll hear about the way sports and the way they're talked about on TV perpetuate racism and inequality for Black people who never even step onto a field. There probably is not a Black man alive today who has not been asked if they're an athlete. It's as if we can do nothing else but catch a ball or run around a track. That's coming up. And remember, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at OnlyAGameNPR. She was once undocumented. Now she writes about the undocumented immigrants 
we often ignore. Day laborers, housekeepers, delivery men, people who don't inspire hashtags or t-shirts. That's coming up on Code Switch. I'm Karen Given. We all know what racism in sports sounds like, right? It sounds like the late Don Imus on his radio show back in 2007. Some rough girls from Rutgers, man. They got tattoos and some hardcore hoes. That's that's some nappy-headed hoes there, I'm going to tell you that. But two sociologists recently published a study that looked at a decade's worth of March Madness broadcasts, and they found that sometimes racial bias sounds like this. That's a tough matchup for J.J. Redick on the glass. Redick not known as a rebounder. Tasman Mitchell, much stronger, bigger, and more athletic. Redick. I mean, of course, we can highlight some of these bigger comments that most people would consider to be racist. That's Dr. Rashawn Ray. He teaches sociology at the University of Maryland College Park. But instead, what we were highlighting in many ways is implicit bias and the subtle ways that race actually operates when it comes to talking about some of these historical stereotypes about what it means to be black and physically superior and at the same time intellectually inferior and on the other hand, what it means to be lighter skinned or white. Dr. Ray and his co-author, Dr. Stephen Foy of the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, transcribed 52 men's college basketball broadcasts, including 11 championship games. They were looking at the ways broadcasters talk about players of different skin tones and whether racial bias was at play. Are people talking about the size and height of darker skin tone players because they're actually larger? Or are they talking about them in that way because of stereotypes about them being larger? So they tracked all of the data about the actual size and skill of the players. Points per game, rebounds per game, assists per game, fouls per game. We took into account all of those factors. And we still found that skin tone and race in a lot of ways was the most significant factor determining how commentators talk about players. We've talked about Matt Howard and how crafty he is, Jim. Shire is much the same way as a perimeter player. Knows how to use that height at 6'5", very effectively to get into the lane. So, crafty, you found that this is often a word used to describe white players, right? Yes, I mean, most definitely. I mean, when we went into this, we thought that we would see commentators talking a lot about just the the raw intellect of players. But we didn't find that at all. I mean, there were a few instances where they talked about their intellect, and oftentimes that was directly linked to their GPA. It was a very small percentage of our sample. What we found more so were these subtle ways that they talked about craftiness. This clip talked about two players. And then interestingly, then talked about how this player supposedly uses their craftiness to actually do something physical. <laughs> I mean, this is the way it comes out for lighter skinned players. If it was a darker skinned player, they wouldn't have mentioned craftiness. Instead, they would have talked about their ability to jump up and get the rebound in some kind of physical way. And so here it is, the same action, something simple like jumping for a rebound. And all of a sudden, it completely transforms transposes the way that players are talked about. Okay, so this is from a little later in that same broadcast where the two white players were called crafty. Here's how announcers described a black player. Here comes streaky, sneaky Willie Beasley. A terrific (laughs) offensive rebounder for his size. And he just weaseled his way to the back. So I'm assuming that is something you would have flagged as being a difference. Absolutely. When you hear the words weaseled out and sneaky, yeah, I mean, the, the, the connection with, that it has to 
to thinking about kind of non-human type of behaviors, kind of weaseled out. It's, it's more animalistic, right? It has this criminal, sneaky element to it. And these are the ways that we hear darker skinned players talked about in ways that we don't hear lighter skinned players talked about. Of course, none of this is new. It became plain as I was growing up and more and more African-American athletes became prominent and entered the sports. White players are gritty. White players are smart. African-American athletes have, quote unquote, natural abilities. That's only a game analyst, Charlie Pierce. In basketball, if somebody did a remarkable move that nobody had seen before, it was dismissed as playground stuff. When Bob Cousy did it, it was genius. If you look at white players as more imbued with intelligence than black players, who are you going to give the jobs for coaching and general manager to when they retire? We see that answer before us. That's journalist Derek Jackson again. Derek says these stereotypes play out when Black people apply for other jobs, too. And that ultimately has massively damaging effects across all of American society. There probably is not a Black man alive today who has not, at one point or another, been asked if they're an athlete. It's as if we can do nothing else but catch a ball or dunk it or run around a track. I teach a race, gender, and sports class at Penn State. This is Dr. Amira Rose Davis again. And every semester without fail, the non-athlete Black kids in my class tell stories of how many times it was assumed that they're athletes. I had one student particularly who was 6'2", Black kid, Black guy, who said, he doesn't have a week on campus, and he was a junior, he doesn't have a week on campus in which there's not some assumption about a team that he belongs to. And so what happens is the messages that are then sent in places of higher education or elite private schools at the high school level, or even at the youth level, is that if you're Black and in these educational spaces, it must be because of athletics and not because of your mind, right? So the other tragedy of that story of the young man I was talking about is he talks about how their face fell and the conversation always seemed to fizzle out once they realized he was not actually on the football team. And the message that he received, that his value his value to the university, his value to his white classmates, his value of even occupying the space of Penn State University was tied only to what he could have produced on the field. Talk about damaging. That's damaging. We tend to put sports on such a pedestal that white Americans think it's a compliment to be asked if you were an athlete. Actually, no. I might want to run a bank. I might want to be a scientist. I write about science and uh, I give book talks. And it's, it's, I got my answers, but people were like, how did you get involved? So the myth of meritocracy isn't just affecting athletes in youth sports or athletes in college sports or athletes in the pros. It turns out these issues of racism and inequity in sports, they're affecting everyone. So what can we do? Ooh, such a great question. Um, I hope that by every answer I've given, we can see that this is an all-hands-on-deck type of thing. That's Penn State professor and Burn It All Down co-host Dr. Amira Rose Davis again. It's about how all of these different parts of what we call sports are interconnected 
and woven together to create the landscape that we know as sports. And so that means that we need to address racism and inequity from all of these different angles. So youth sports is a huge place to start and often gets left out of the conversation. Youth sports is a $25 billion industry that funnels black kids into basketball and football and track, but leaves out those who can't pay to play, Davis says. Taking money out of sports in any way that we can helps a lot of things. And then as we move up through the collegiate into the professional levels, we have to get serious about hiring uh, diverse coaching staffs and guidance counselors and sports media really needs to get it together. (laughs) We've been saying that for a while, but it's true. They really do. Um, And so I think that it's one of those things where there's not one easy answer. There's not any easy answer, but there's certainly not one. Over the past few weeks, I've heard a lot of ideas on how sports could be made more equitable and less racist, and all of them seem like they would help. Should we consider penalizing universities that don't graduate their Black athletes? Absolutely. That would help. Can we change the rules of college recruiting to limit some of the advantages wealthy athletes have, including unlimited unofficial visits to schools? Absolutely. That would help. Do we need to find ways to make youth sports cheaper and more accessible to all? Absolutely. That would help. But there's a problem with simply reforming the current sports system. The long view of it is that institutions have always been designed and built in ways to advantage, you know, white elite men in particular. That's Dr. Kirsten Hextrom again. She studies race and sports at the University of Oklahoma. Every reform in the existing system is going to have severe consequences to it. People with advantage are going to be more skilled at finding ways to get around that reform. So just like pretty much everyone else we spoke with, Hextrom encourages us to think bigger. Too often we focus on these kind of niche and specific policies. I kind of want us to look at how we could kind of reimagine sports as a whole. So similar to the conversations we're having at policing, what would new sport forms that truly are equitable look like? And that might mean coming up with new types of sports in and of themselves. So, for instance, we have in the United States, we have games that are based on dominance and competition. And I think we should reimagine that and think about what what is it that we like and what are some of the benefits of sports that we want to keep, you know, such as physical health, wellness, community, and really try to imagine sports that map along those lines. So what if, instead of investing in basketball and soccer teams, communities provided access to Tai Chi and recreational swimming pools and biking trails? What if colleges, instead of spending millions of dollars hiring the best football coaches, spent their money on sports the entire student body could play? They might no longer involve competing against other universities. They might just be about students playing games amongst themselves. I know, I know. That idea seems crazy and maybe even impossible. But there's a bigger challenge that our experts mentioned. Yes, even bigger than dismantling all of sports and imagining something better. And that challenge really doesn't have anything at all to do with sports. What we really need to do is dismantle the structural racism that underlies everything in our society, not just our games.
We are long past Jackie Robinson. Journalist Derek Jackson. We're long past Hank Aaron, my hero. Uh, we're long past Oscar Robertson and Kareem. And we're still at a place where Black people don't even have significant power in the one thing that society has said they're good at. So he'll chase Jack Nicholas, but he follows Jackie Robinson as a man who broke barriers, men who transcended their sport. 23 years ago, Tiger Woods won the Masters by a record 12 strokes. There it is, a win for the ages. The moment was hailed as a tipping point. This was proof, they said, that racism in sports was a thing of the past, that anything was possible with hard work and talent. And this is what Derek Jackson wrote for the Boston Globe. Tiger Woods is the latest comic strip in America's never-ending search for black Superman. After his victory in the Masters Golf Tournament, a New York Times headline said, Woods tears down barriers. The Baltimore Sun called it a day of broken barriers. And the Los Angeles Times said, barriers are buried. Jackson wasn't buying it. An America that was serious about ending racism would never have maintained the barriers for a woods to shatter in the first place. True barriers will be broken when white people stop smothering and drowning black aspiration. True barriers will be broken when the fat cats who cheered Woods on the golf course start hiring and promoting people of color at their own businesses. True barriers will be broken when white people who hail Woods' multicultural blend of bloodlines truly welcome multicultural classrooms and education. Race relations will not improve as long as white people stand safely on the other side of the wall, cheering the precious few who can leap them with a single bound. The people of Metropolis have no right to claim Woods as their new superhero when they hand Black people so much kryptonite. Jackson says he doesn't feel like much has changed since 1997. And this idea that Black athletes can lift themselves out of poverty and transcend the effects of systemic racism? I am so sick of that narrative. You know, a player, a black player comes to the line <laughs> shooting a free throw and you can almost like telegraph it before it even starts. What a wonderful kid. He comes up from the tough upbringing and he's survived all that. And, you know, why do we make our black kids survive anything? I think the point is to have a larger conversation so that we're not only focused on that moment of upward mobility, but we're asking why was it required? Dr. Amira Rose Davis again. Why are these the only opportunities for Black youth, both historically and now? I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the 60s. Amen. And he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. With athletes like the NBA's Malcolm Brogdon joining protests against police brutality, maybe we are actually getting closer to a tipping point, not one that's caused by a singular Black athlete winning a game or setting a record, but one that's caused by a groundswell of people demanding change. What we're seeing right now in the reaction of the killings of so many Black people what we're seeing with the disparities of COVID and terms like systemic racism finally gaining currency, thank goodness, we can no longer 
uncritically celebrate the singular people like a Tiger Woods or a Jackie Robinson or a Hank Aaron. Sure, sports has been an enormous force for good for many African-Americans. Some, like Princeton's Russell Dinkins, credit college sports with changing their lives. And those who make the pros can attain generational wealth and a platform for speaking out on social issues. 70% of the players in the NFL and nearly 80% of the players in the NBA are Black. But by celebrating those achievements, Jackson says, we lose sight of the big picture. I would actually rather celebrate a nation where 13 or 14% of the NBA, 13 to 14% of the NFL is Black, and that 13 and 14% of physicists and scientists and mathematicians and lawyers and geeks in Silicon Valley are Black. That's the game I want to see Black people winning. And ultimately, at the end of the day, decades from now, it won't be tomorrow, an America that is open to all means that we'll actually be playing sports less and doing much more of the engine that keeps America going. Only a Game is produced by Jonathan Chang, Martin Kessler, and Gary Wallach. Our technical director is Marquise Neal. Our executive producer is me. I'm Karen Given. Only a Game returns next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, or listening again. We'll be diving even deeper into this very important topic during our free online event on Wednesday, August 12th at 6 p.m. Eastern. Register and learn how to submit your questions at wbur.org events.